1: Welcome to episode 25 of 10 Music this podcast, which has my fan graphs from somewhat muggy to Cowbell, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, and joining me for a turn engagement as the co-host. If you know him, you love him. He's a former beat writer who's gone legit, now an editor for the metro area of the New York Times. Metro area? What does that mean? The Metro section of the New York Times with a focus on COVID, the beat that will not go away, and joining us from... Luxurious accommodations, nonetheless, in Brooklyn. That's Jorge. Arangue. Jorge, how are you?
2: I'm good, Kevin. Thank you for having me back. Um, you must have cycled through everyone you know. Because i am certainly we, on yeah, the way back. Yeah, it's That's a snake draft.
1: Fun. We've come back around. Um, <laughs>
0: right.
1: So I, we, we will get to your miserable life later. Um, and, and, and the beat that will not go away, even though it should. Uh, but we'll start. We'll talk about baseball. Um, we will get into a little bit of COVID in baseball because that seems to be getting worse, just like COVID in the rest of the world or in the real world. Uh, our special guest joining us from Los Angeles is Chelsea James, the national writer for the Washington Post. I Man, we have the New York Times and the Washington Post on today, which some people are not going to be happy about that. And uh, you know, Chelsea is there and she was at the game one between the Dodgers and the Astros and talk about the atmosphere out of there. But uh, I also want to talk to her a little bit more about the Washington Nationals who, who kind of turned things on a dime real quick and then made the big trade of Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to the Dodgers. Um, and also talk about Chelsea's strange career of going from baseball writer to political writer, back to baseball writer. Uh, and then we'll do our musical guest and read your emails and catch up with Jorge and, and, forget when he ever gets off this beat, have our moment of culture, and then we'll be out of here. You ready for baseball, Jorge?
2: You know, I definitely am. I mean, I, <laughs> now more than ever, I would love to talk about baseball.
1: <laughs> so last week, uh, co-host was Stephen Goldman, and we were able to cover uh, the, the trade deadline basically through Thursday at lunch. Um,
2: Nothing happened much after that, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then things got insane. Um in one of the the busiest and more star studded uh trade deadlines and I don't know, recent memories certainly. Um you know, we talked to Max Scherzer and Trey Turner got moved. The Yankees got Anthony Rizzo and Joey Gallo. The Cubs traded away everybody. Um all of a sudden Jose Jose Barrios is going to Toronto. Uh this got real wacky real quick and, and I Still, you know, if you if you look at playoff odds, i it, still it, still surprised by just how much the Yankees did and how they're not messing around. But I also kind of appreciate the fact that they're that they're never ever not going to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's that's who the Yankees are, right? I mean, I think that, that we've all come to know, and I think part of the fan frustration and and it always happens, right? Since since George passed away, is you know, if George was here, he would be right. shaking things up. He would bring. Uh, all the star players and and do all these things, and so to have them do something like this I, you know I, I don't know how you feel about it, Kim, but I thought that you know having such a lively trade deadline is is good for the sport. It oh, might it's not se- you know it might not necessarily be great for fans in Chicago to see sort of everybody they knew gone, but you know I think in general, you know I think it does create some excitement some anticipation. Um, and, you know, in the days after you get to see these guys and just, you know, these uniforms that you're not accustomed to seeing them. in. Um, yeah,
1: no, I think it's great for the game. I think it, like you said, in the, the, the attention definitely spreads over multiple days and you have the press conferences and, you know, the last, whatever, 72 hours right after it's filled with, you know, look at Anthony Rizzo wearing his Cubs flag, batting gloves with his Yankees Jersey and look at Max Scherzer in blue and, and all that kind of stuff. I think it's great for the game. And, um, the reasons why deals get made can sometimes be upsetting. Um, and I get it. Uh, but yeah, it, it was, you know, obviously I live in the Chicago media market, let's call it. And it's dark in, 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 in Cubs land, um, you know, end of an era, you know, bias goes, they you know, they trade away Craig Kimball who had a year left, but the big names that people wanted to trade, they all they trade all of them. So bias goes to the Mets, Rizzo to the Yankees, um, and, and Chris Bryant kind of at the last minute to San Francisco. And I've done like a ton of Chicago radio in the last four days. And like, if you get past, if you, cause you're forced to, to talk about it, if you get past like the, whether they, it was the right thing to do, once they decide this is what they're doing and we can accept this is what they're doing. They kind of execute on it. Well, I think um, they got a lot of players back and, and I, I, whether they should have done it or not is a whole other story, but if that's what they're going to do, I thought they did it well. And and I, but I, you know, it's not coming quick, and sh- the Cubs are going to be bad for a while now because everything they got was super young.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because the first time around that I co-hosted. Um, We had one of the Cubs beat writers and it was the first first week of the season. And one of your questions was, what's going to happen to those three guys? (laughs) And now it's funny to come back. um, And, well, I guess we know what happened to those three guys. They're all gone. Um, (laughs) And I I think what was interesting to me about the deadline is I think it's like you hardly ever see teams – certainly mid-season commit to a rebuild like this, as several teams did. I mean, they went all in on a rebuild, and teams, you know, you don't see that a lot. I mean, you'll you'll see it sort of trickle in in a certain way, like they'll trade one guy, um, you know, maybe in the offseason they'll trade another guy. Obviously, that wasn't an option here with the Cubs, but I just meant like this offseason they didn't trade anybody. Um, And the fact that sort of like at mid-season you had at least several teams saying, you know what, it just wasn't working, and let's just start over. Um, right you know and then you don't usually necessarily see it that way it's usually like you see it's, again, it again sort of happened a little bit more slowly a little bit more sort of uh trickle down in sort of kind of a way but you know everyone jumping in on this like the nationals jumping in on a rebuild which was you know i think you know we'll talk about this later with chelsea but it was a little surprising you know some of the you know that it just
1: happened real quick
2: yeah it just happened real quick and it's just and it, i mean i think both the nationals and the cup situations just Shows how quickly the you know baseball changes. You know, you go from teams that win the World Series, and how quickly you know fortunes can change in the game. Um, and certainly now in the modern game, um, you know, where you have guys coming in and out of rosters, it just the dynamics just change so quickly. So I think you know when you when you see teams just really going after winning, um, you understand it because the whole you know you only have a window that can, that sometimes is open a couple of two, three years and then right. sort of, it's so hard to keep that window open for a long, long, long time.
1: And, and even for the Cubs, I mean, that was, that it didn't happen right at the deadline with, like with Washington, but it still was real quick. You know, they were kind of in it and people were talking about them and like, Oh, this, they're going to go out in a blaze of glory. And this is what a great time to be. And then they're, they're a game and a half out. And, here they come, and what moves? Are, who are they going to add? They they need to find another starting pitcher. They're going to get Max Scherzer, and next thing you know, they lose eleven in a row. Um, at the same time, Milwaukee gets super hot, and all of a sudden they're like double digits out, and it's over, and and everyone's gone. Well, know, it happen, I, happened like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm curious from your point of view, you know, having been in a front office. Um, I mean, how, and but obviously you guys were very successful. But I'm just saying, like you know. I wonder if the Cubs for an office, when they're going on a good streak and they're a game behind, they know it's fool's gold. And they're like, Mm -hmm. can we just sort of like maybe find the real team so we know what (laughs) decisions we like? We really don't want to have to try to acquire somebody because we know that this is not necessarily indicative of how good this ball club is. I mean,
1: I I think you definitely, you know, those, you know, whether it's indicative or not, like those wins are wins, right? Those wins are in the bank, right? um and you kind of have to play it through and i feel like in some ways um that the giants still feel that way even though they got chris Bryant, they're still in first place and you know we've spent whatever four months now asking when the giants are going to stop being the best team in the west and they still are and you know they were built very similar to the cubs or so that we've all expiring contracts we'll see what happens and then july We'll have all these, you know, everyone will want Kevin Gassman and, and Dees Claffini and Wood and these guys, and, and you know, it'll, it'll help kickstart the rebuild. And they held on to everyone and got Chris Bryant. But I think they're in the same hole. But, you know, I think you kind of have to honor the performance and the players. And even if it does feel like a little bit of fool's gold, if you're in the position, you know, try to go for it.
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, like you, if uh, obviously I was certainly not advocating it that if they're in first place, they should have, <laughs> but it is, it just sort of like white flag deal. Yeah, it just sort of, like, leaves you in such a tricky spot, you know, because you know, like, a, a bad week after you acquire, if you acquire someone, you have a bad week, and you're suddenly out of it, you're like, damn, we should have just traded everybody, yeah. <laughs> you
1: know? I think the Giants are in a kind of a unique position, because the Giants, I think they have some chance to bring some of these expiring contracts back, so they can look at it like, oh, yes, things are going to be different next year, but you know, maybe we can get Gossman to come back and and you know who by all accounts really likes it there. Um, you know, we obviously now have an, an exclusive negotiating window with Chris Bryant, who, you know, wants to be back on the West Coast. We're on the West Coast. I realize it's not so he's From, but playing for the Giants is great. You know, it's a great city and a great place and money here's and you know, they're in a position to pay money. Like I think they're gonna try to keep some of these players to try to otherwise like, the turnover is going to be almost unmanageable. They have so many guys who are up, who are free agents at the end of the year.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously the Giants are in a little bit of a different position because they you know they have been so good, not just good, but so good, um, that they're clearly making the playoffs. I mean, yeah. just, you know, so I think that's a little bit of a different circumstance. But when you're, like, in one of those gray areas where you're, like, close to playoff contention but not quite there, um, it does – I can only imagine the sort of the difficult sort of discussions you guys – have in the front office um, in terms of how to play at the deadline.
1: Yeah, and I think you see a lot of teams do kind of what the Cardinals did, and just kind of, eh, we're just going to ride it out. Like you're not selling anything, you're yeah. not really buying. They picked up a couple of guys to kind of give them innings, but that's it. And um,
2: what, I, I, what did you think of the Twins? I mean, that, that's
0: I sort
1: of... I was surprised that they traded Barrios. You know, I really yeah. thought, um. I really thought that like they were in a real good position to go, you know what, we did a lot of stuff this year to make a push for the Central title, and it didn't work out. Guys got hurt, guys didn't perform. It's a disaster. Let's reset for 2022, and we'll trade anybody away with an expiring contract. We'll talk, we'll, we'll, the, all are available, but we won't trade anyone long-term. Um, and I think they just kind of started listening on Berrios, and, and next thing you know, they were getting way more than they thought. Um, i Still, kind of have mixed feelings about what they trade him for, but uh, I was surprised that they that they still took away a guy who's going to be, you know, their number one or two starter next year. I, I think that was a weird choice because I, I do think they could kind of, you know, retool based on the core they have and and you know, have a, a solid chance in the central next year.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's they seem to be a team that has do, has done that right the last few years. That's yeah, they're really good at it. Yeah, they're really good at it. I mean, it's just. You know, flipping it around, and it, it, I was a little surprised at as well that he got traded.
1: Yeah, it was very strange, and it it sounded like they weren't even listening on him. And someone then they you know at some point they said, "Well, what would you give us?" And they asked a lot of teams, and they were surprised by the answer. And all of a sudden, he was going to move. But uh, I just it's he, that dude's good. I think it's hard to it's a it's, it's hell of a lot harder to replace a number two starter than it is, you know, to go back to the Cubs like a you know early thirties declining pretty good first baseman you know it's such a weird thing to I, to trade away there it's a far more rare commodity than some of these other rental players were and I, to have trade that away with control i think it's just a strange decision for a team that again could contend next year
0: yeah what, what does
2: your gut tell you i mean what what team do you do you love what they did
1: like low-key oakland
0: mm-hmm.
1: um yeah you know, I, I, Marte i thought was a really good sign for them i thought like jan gomes and josh harrison are kind of these very underrated additions. Um like Jan Gomes as a, a veteran catcher, great game manager, guy pitchers pitches love throwing to, is a fantastic guy to kind of pair with Sean Murphy. Um and will probably provide value to Sean Murphy as well as providing the the standard Jan Gome's value. Um, and then Josh Harrison is an absolute 80 presence in a clubhouse. Um, It kind of reminds me of the Escobar trade with the Brewers. Escobar is obviously a much better player, but the kind of vibes those guys bring with them, uh, both Escobar and Josh Harrison, I don't think can be underrated. And I I thought the Bays did kind of sneakily did some good things. Andrew Chafin, I think it's perfectly good left-hand reliever. He helps shore up a bullpen and gives them a lot more uh, possibilities for getting three more outs to get them to the, to the end of the game. And uh, they did a lot of moves, no big splash moves, but I thought they added a lot of players that were, that, that were kind of perfect fits for what they needed
2: how do you how do you as a front office person evaluate the makeup like you know or the presence in a clubhouse during especially during like a deadline situation i mean how do you yeah
1: that? you talk to people like you you yeah. need to uh, like have people who know people and, and, and be able to lean on people yourself um during my last couple of years with the astros um he's not with the astros anymore but he still works for a team um one of the the members of uh, one of the, the the scouts who was on my staff was a player who really just kind of recently got off the field right it was maybe two years since since he played uh, and when i hired him he was just getting off the field he came on as a scout literally the next year after he was done playing and played in the big leagues and he was this really kind of fun outgoing personality knew everybody had everybody's phone number and and, and literally any player you could say hey what do you know about john smith and he'd go i'll call you back in 15 minutes right and 15 minutes later he would have talked to six people about this guy and, how, and like how he fits in the clubhouse is he a good dude what his work ethic is like have there been any incidents like the whole thing uh and it was remarkable and, and really valuable and, and he moved on to another team and um you know try to follow the same thing like it, it's you know, AJ Hinch always wanted to know like how's this guy going to fit into the clubhouse. I'll worry about the playing time, but let me know how he's going to fit into the clubhouse and the vibes and things like that. And you got to like find people who know him. So I, I, there are beat writers who I knew who I would trust enough that wouldn't get out that I could call them and say, "Hey, how's this guy? You see him every day, you know?" Um, and I know there are other teams who, who get in touch with beat writers who can keep a secret. And um, but yeah, you got to you definitely have to kind of scroll through your contacts and figure out does you know they know that guy do they know that guy and then if you're around you just like hear enough people saying man when we had josh harrison that dude was awesome he came sound like you hear like about nelson cruz kind of stuff you know like literally, people going out of their way to go, "Oh, yeah, we had Nelson Cruz for a couple of years. He was amazing.
2: So when you say like you know a clubhouse a good clubhouse guy and he's a good you know leader or whatever, what does that mean to you when he the guy comes into the to your team? I mean what what do you expect that to translate into?
1: I, you know it can be a lot of things to be honest with you. I, I, you're right. It does seem kind of generic. And I think in a guy like you know Nelson Cruz, he is kind of like a father figure, like lead by example, kind of kind of reputation. And, you know Josh Harrison and and, and even Eduardo Escobar I talked about earlier who you know went to the Brewers have more of these just coming in good vibes kind of reputations like they're coming here they bring an energy to the thing always positive um, guys who can lift a clubhouse when it needs it um, but they're not the kind of guys who are gonna you know go grab a guy and, and, and yell and shove into a locker when he needs it they're just like super positive good vibes people um i think both those can be real valuable you just want somebody who's not going to be problematic and I, I think and there's a lot of players who can be really problematic and and finding someone who like even if he brings in a different way just doesn't bring something that's problematic at times can be seen as like oh that's great let's get that that's gonna help
2: yeah i mean how do you balance that i mean like if you're a team that's like thinking about like a very talented player bringing them in but you know that the reputation is is he doesn't get along with people mm-hmm. like you know, like you know, it's gonna you know you know on the field it's gonna translate to stuff. But do you, I mean, do you? How much do you weigh that?
1: I think. That, I mean, I, you know, I think the sad truth is, and it's been this way forever, is that like the better you are, the bigger an asshole you're gonna put up with. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um. If, if if there's um, I mean, I hate to bring him up because of the you know the current circumstances uh around it, but like there's a reason a player. Uh, just simply as good at baseball as Trevor Bauer was on three teams before he reached free agency. Right. If a, a, a non difficult human being um, with that kind of talent would have never been in that situation where there were teams looking to trade him away. Cause he's such a pain in the ass. Um, but yeah, the, the better you are, the, the bigger asshole they're going to put up with. That's just, I don't know. That's some sort of weird form of capitalism, right?
2: Yeah, for sure you're right yeah exactly i mean i just wonder at what some point does it you know it's a diminishing value if he's going to start pissing people off in the club yeah house.
1: for sure I th- you yeah know? you think you got to be a star it's like it's you know there are like you know at any point you can find like on baseball reference there's probably like eight to ten catchers who are either in the big leagues or in triple as a as a team's third catcher who are like you know 33 to 38 years old who've been around they're now on their you know 12th to 16th year and they're all like 200 hitters who could you know everyone's while run into one um there's a million of them and there's always like eight to ten who just keep going And you're like what separates those eight to ten i guarantee you those eight to ten great dudes to a man. You know what I mean? Like that that's and that's why they lasted out. Like that why is he still that, that dude's That dude's yeah, awesome. I mean, I, I honestly, you know, you can go get him.
2: I honestly can't remember like ever as a beat writer dealing with like an asshole backup catcher. Right. That doesn't <laughs> right. like you like there's no point in you being there if that's what you're gonna be like. As right. A catcher.
1: Yeah. Like some dude <laughs> could like pick it and work with pitchers and then has a little bit of power because he's a catcher, so he's probably to be a sturdy dude. Like there are 70 of them, and you're just gonna get the good dude. You know, it's, right. it's time and time again. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, that, that stuff matters as well. I, I was just thinking kind of the reversed aspect of the star system, um, which allows guys to get away with more. It also, you know, there's an aspect, too, to the kind of backup player system. And, like, all those guys who, like, you know, you go to some, you know, whatever, you run to a A game, and you go, man, I can't believe that guy's still around. Chances are great he's a really good dude. Because if he wasn't, their teams would just be done with him.
2: Yeah, you know? I mean, I always, I mean, I, just, you know, in general, I found the trade deadline just kind of fascinating. I mean, just bringing in mid-season, these personalities. I mean, so much of relationships that happen, in, you know, in, in clubhouses are, you know, forged in spring training from spending six weeks together, you know, before it counts. And so it's always interesting the, the dynamics of how a clubhouse can change at a deadline.
1: Yeah, for sure. People, you know? And like, I you know, remember the, you know, the, probably the biggest trade I was ever a part of was the, the Astros acquisition of Justin Verlander um and there's like this huge question like what's he gonna be like what's he gonna be like and and we spent a lot of time trying to answer those questions and, and um ended up being very pleasantly surprised by the answers to those questions um because i don't know i I it was just maybe from just watching him pitch i bet i, said, ah, I bet this guy's kind of a diva and like, like no and it was like no he's great he'll be fine and he'll fit right in and then he actually i think has a lot of interest in what you guys are doing with pitching and stuff and, and we heard like no potential problems and, and there were no potential problems.
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously it was a success. A huge yeah, success. It worked, so. but, yeah, I mean, it worked out. And too, it was kind of like,
1: you know, I, I told like, you know, he arrived and, you know, as, as it was put to me, like, you know, Justin Verlander, this guy's won MVPs in size. Like if he just walks in and says, I'm Justin Verlander and, and like, Someone in the pitching coach tries to approach him with data stuff, and he goes, fuck you, I'm Justin Berlander. That's fine. He gets to do that. He's Justin Berlander. Um, but he walked in and just said, like, show me everything you got. Uh, yeah, I want to I know everything you have on me. And and showed him all the data and, and made a few changes recommend on that, and the rest is that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't work out. I mean, it's hard to ask for it to work out better than someone who comes in and does that. Right. You know, like a superstar who, who just wants to know, well, what do you know about me? That's amazing.
1: Um, so the deadline was on Friday and was not the end of the weekend's drama, as on Sunday afternoon was the 2021 draft signing deadline. Um, they do much shorter than they than they used to. And, you know, coming down to the wire we're a handful of players and we ended up with a, a, a three big ones who didn't sign. Um, you know, three day one and two picks didn't sign. That's it. Um, you know, Judd Fabian, who made all sorts of indications he might go back to school, was going back to school. Um, a kid named Muyo, who the Astros took with their second pick, did not sign. And the big story, of course, was and part of it's because of the player and part of it because the, the market is Kumar Rocker not signing with the Mets on Sunday afternoon. And uh, there was, a, the Mets had a huge issue with the medical review. Um, There's clearly something in their mind uh, wrong with his arm. Uh, the draft exists solely to limit, kind of keep the owners from doing something stupid themselves. They kind of kind of a self-regulating thing and it, it, it keep, reduces players leverage. It keeps money down, keeps bonuses down, but, As part of the rule, they didn't even have to give him an offer. They did not give him an offer. And Kumar Rocker now is in limbo until the 2022 draft. And staying away from the fact that the draft is wrong and and could arguably be abolished. If they didn't give Kumar Rocker an offer, Kumar Rocker should be allowed to accept offers from other teams at this point, right?
0: Absolutely.
2: I mean, also, I mean, why couldn't the Mets also just trade his rights or something, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's got to be a solution here where both, you know, the team and the players feel like there's another option. I mean, you know, like for the Mets, it's a gamble. Sure, you lose one player for one year of development, but they get a, a pick next year in a similar slot. So like, like they have essentially the entire leverage here. I mean, it's 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 remarkable sort of like as from the player's point of view i mean it's so much pressure to accept essentially what they they offer you you know whatever it is the offer um you know you you do worry as a player that you're going to lose development years i mean everyone talks about that um you know one year older i mean obviously we know how that situation works out internationally of how much it costs to you when you're one year older um so it is sort of like it's an intense amount of pressure on a on, on kid and and the family. Um,
1: yeah, and it just seems like it's just so wrong that he didn't even get an offer and now he's stuck for a year. And, and like you said, they should be allowed to trade him. Like if they don't have interest, that's fine. That's their right. And, and I don't, you know, I don't think the Mets acted. I, I'm, I'm quite sure that the Mets are very concerned about the medical and concerned enough that they didn't want to make him an offer. And that's that's fine, but for this kid to have, like sit for a year is ridiculous because th- th- he didn't turn anything down even there, yeah. there's abs- for that to be the system. And the problem is, is every year or every CBA, the draft is the redhead stepchild. Like they, they talk about the draft, the last thing they talk about. Um, and, and there's not a lot of time put into it. And we're seeing players like this get screwed. And I don't know if the union cares that much um, just because these kids aren't in the union.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, the people that are bargaining for what the system is don't have a real incentive for these kids to be getting a ton of money, really. I mean, you know, because the more money that a team may spend on a player like this that's not part of the union may take away from money they may spend on a player who's in the union. So it's like, you know, like now the Mets have like a few more dollars that they can, you know, invest in maybe – players that are, you know, union players, not minor league players, not amateur players. Um, And so it's always seemed weird to me that that it's the union who negotiates its rules, as they do for the international players.
0: Right.
1: Um, And it's because things get connected to free agency, and all of a sudden they become within their purview.
2: Exactly. I mean, I think the one thing interesting too, I mean, that it's, and I'm curious what your opinion is, is like, you know, because there is no sort of like one mass combine kind of thing, I mean, do you think teams should have medicals on players before the draft? Uh, Or, I mean, I don't know what you think about that. I mean, but it just certainly seems that if the Mets had seen something before the draft, then we wouldn't even be in this position. They wouldn't have drafted them. Somebody else would have a shot and, you know, and whatever. I I, I don't know how you feel about that, though.
1: So there is a system in place where the top whatever number of pitchers is defined by a fairly abstract system, um, but teams can suggest players. have the opportunity to undergo an MRI and submit that MRI prior to the draft. Um, Scott Boris does not have his players do it. And, and a lot of agents feel the same way. Um, and I think it's, I understand it. You know, I, I think, you know, giving a play, giving a team, such a, an opportunity is, is a reason to find a, a is there, it's just, all it can do is give you a reason to lower your bonus offer to him. If um, if you, as someone who's you know dealt with this a time, like if you took, just pick a random big league team, and just got the 14 pitches on their active roster right now and MRI'd their elbow and their shoulder, you would want to renegotiate half of their contracts, right? They all have like a a little tear here and some fraying there. Nothing positive is going to come if you submit to this, and you know if you give them the more time they ha- they have to look at it, the more things they're going to find wrong with them. Um, so I, I understand and kind of support the agents like Boris and some others who don't submit their kids to, to the system because all it can do is, is bad things for their player. But sometimes you end, you end up in a situation like this where, you know, the signing is conditional on a physical, it gets the physical and there's really is something wrong. Um, and I don't think the Mets are making something up And I know Boris can say, you know, he's perfectly healthy, but you know, I had a, a friend who's a lawyer who reached out to me and he's talking about this thing and he, he's, certainly done medical mal- malpractice kind of suits and he said like you can find any case and within five minutes i could t- find you a professional medical legal opinion guy who will tell you that this person is the healthiest person going to live forever and if you give me five more minutes i will find you one to tell you he's going to die tomorrow um it's, it's real easy to do and so it's hard to know i think the, the mets have a real issue here and and whether they're right about it we'll find out and um, but it's just an ugly place to be. And but more, for, I just feel bad for the kid. Like I don't really feel bad for the Mets. It's a tough thing. But like I said, they'll pick eleventh next year. They haven't really lost that much. I feel bad for Kumar Rocker, who wants to play baseball. Yeah, and, I, and, and has the right to try to prove something.
0: Uh, yeah, I just
2: feel like it's just unfortunate. There's no way to turn back on
1: this. Like, in should there be of, no draft?
2: I mean, no. I don't. I mean, I've always been against.
1: Why shouldn't teams just be able to sign whoever they want? Yeah,
2: exactly. You know, like. You know if, if you know believe, believe me you know we've talked about this with international stuff like the whole issue of drafts and stuff and why they shouldn't be be one internationally it just i mean aside from it being difficult to coordinate it's just you know the sort of the free agency system it no one has proven to me that the ability of teams to just sign whoever they want internationally is affected by how they perform at the major league level mm-hmm. of their budgets i mean you often see the teams that are you know that we, t- we consider low budget teams make some of the bigger splash signings internationally. Right. So like you know the whole thing about well it, it helps the lower performing teams that's not
0: necessarily true. Right.
1: And um, if you're yeah. someone who believes in free markets, why would you want a draft?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I, I, I it would be interesting. I mean, the draft was invented because teams owners were upset at other owners for these you know for bonus babies as they were called. Um, and here we are, but there shouldn't the draft is designed solely to keep money down and it's not up to it shouldn't be up to any system to keep if you want to keep money down without colluding um, like leave in the free market and start signing players
2: I mean and, if, and right. realistically I mean how many times do we see a player drop because of what they perceived bonus demands are I mean right you know so it's not like, a, like it's actually going on talent necessarily or no, yep
1: yeah, absolutely like, yeah the, the NBA and the NFL draft which probably most should be a boss too like though the way those go down, because it's more of a it's it's a slot system but the slot is assigned to that pick you can't kind of move those slots around is a far more the, the that draft order i believe is far more representative of the actual talent than any baseball draft ever is
2: yeah i mean i think i always found it funny like you have to, like when you read stories about teams like they had a poli- picking like late in a round or or even mid level right like they'll they'll pick a guy who's you know, who they, who they're taking a reach on because it'll give them a low bonus to give a guy later in the draft, a bigger bonus. Yeah. Like it, that,
0: it, it works that,
1: well. Yeah.
2: That, that blows my mind. It's like, well, why don't you just pick that player at that, the higher <laughs> right. spot if you think that that player is that much better? And it's just so weird about how, you know, it's, it's a strategy, obviously. To, right. It's to a strategy to do about getting well. them both. Exactly. So it's just interesting to me sort of how like, the player that you maybe view higher is the one that you pick later, <laughs> rather than the one that you pick earlier, um, you might not feel as, got, as talented as the guy that you pick later. So it's just, yeah, this, the strategy involved is not necessarily indicative of, a, of teams picking solely on talent, one through 30, you
1: know? Yeah, yeah we had a couple of situations. Um, I think the Royals, definitely the Padres, where the next pick got made more, had a bigger bonus than the first rounder.
2: Yeah, which um, is insane. So, like, that makes no sense to me like like how the draft is not supposed to work that way like, like why don't you just pick that player that you like higher
1: um, think, of, think of things that make no sense to me um, we've reached the point where MLB Trade Rumors basically has uh, a, a daily COVID notebook um, Garrett Cole testing positive, missing a start um, Jordan Montgomery testing positive. The Yankees have had a lot of breakthrough cases. Uh, the Brewers are in huge trouble right now. It's all, it's all They have nine players on the COVID aisle. Um, a lot of teams expected this with the All-Star break because for all the players who don't go to the All-Star game, the key word in that phrase is break. Um, and they all go see their family. Um, there are a lot of baseball players from Florida and Texas and the South. And all of a sudden, they are taking commercial flights and going to places that have uh, having huge problems with the Delta variant. And then they all, kind of gab, they all kind of spread out and then gather back around into a clubhouse, charter, and hotel situation. And, and, and we are where we are. Um, things are bad. Things are getting worse. Should baseball start thinking, at least thinking, about another playoff bubble or is this Um, or are we going to be okay here
2: i mean i think ultimately we'll be okay i mean i think you know the more players that are getting vaccinated the better that you're that you'll feel that even if you have some positives it's not going to result in the kinds of things that would you know cause like a stoppage you know like a player needing hospitalization or something like that i mean What you're seeing is, you know, guys have to sit usually for, you know, with the 10 days or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, and they come back. I mean, is it unfortunate? Yes. But this is what happens when you're playing during a
3: pandemic.
2: (laughs) I mean, it was never, it was never, you should have never expected it to go smoothly. Um, And so seeing cases, it's not surprising, but it's also not like the end of the world either. I mean, you know, you have guys, especially now, even if you hear about guys who were vaccinated, like I said, they come back and for the most part, I've been fine. I mean, we really, you know, last year, I think we heard it was like a guy like Moncada talk about how he felt that he was sort of affected. Right. Am I remembering correctly? That yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. We, we I mean we haven't had guys come back and say, oh, my God, I, I'm not yeah. the same person again. So, OK the you know we're dealing with inconveniences here which which you know this is a pandemic you're going to be inconvenienced <laughs> um as long as you're not having players end up in the hospital you're not having coaches end up in the hospital this is sort of like you know i wouldn't say it's obviously not best case scenario but it's a scenario that's not horrifying is what i'll say
1: yeah yeah and it feels like a lot of these cases leave the breakthrough cases they are all j and j players a lot of players did not want to do the the mrna uh vaccinations because of the second day and the side effects and missing games and stuff like that and so a lot of them did the one shot and they felt it was easier but it feels like those are more that thing's not as an effective vaccine it feels like
2: i mean i think it's also i mean i think you also have to remember that like
1: they're living dangerous lives as they're, they're as living dangerous lives. wise
2: yeah i mean listen you you're, you have guys crammed in a clubhouse 26 guys plus coaches, plus other staff people in tight quarters, you know, like obviously the clubhouses are big, but they're certainly not like open air amphitheaters. Right, (laughs) right, right. They're closed. And then even in the dugout, you're pretty close to each other. Everyone's, you know, sort of tight and, and, you know, hugging and high fiving. And so like you have a lot of interaction between a lot of people
1: on teams. And And then they got on a plane together.
2: Then they get on a, exactly they get on a plane together I mean and let's let's be honest I mean do they yeah. have their masks on the entire time they Probably do not they do not
1: they do not I, I I can confirm that from talking to some people about this so and then yeah. they all go to a, then they all go to a hotel exactly. together so I mean you have like get, and they get on buses together it's it's
2: you, like, I mean you have like an incubator for <laughs> for, disease right. it's so, for it's a risky lifestyle for for getting covid exactly and again I think it's not great that these you know that there's cases but again we're not seeing any severe outcomes um, as a result of any of the positives. So, you know, I I think it's important to sort of understand that the vaccinations have certainly helped. And as long as as you have, you know, the majority of teams having a lot of percentage, a high percentage of players and staff vaccinated, then you're going to be okay. Are, Are there going to be, you know, situations where teams will be having to deal with, with not a lot of you know, with some a certain amount of players testing positive? Yes, will that continue to happen? Probably. But again, it's it's an inconvenience. I mean, then it's a result of trying to play during a pandemic.
1: Do you I mean, we'll talk about this later about how, you know, it's August and you're still on the COVID beat for the New York Times. Um or is it is this just Reality from now until the end of the World Series? Like, is there a solid chance that, like, even the World Series we're talking about, how that guy's out with COVID? It's, it's just we're not, it feels like we're going the wrong way. there's It almost feels unavoidable at this point.
2: I mean, I think it wouldn't be a surprise to me if that happened. You know, like, if you have a World Series and suddenly a star player has to miss the entire series, I mean, you're talking 10 days. That's, it could be an entire yeah, it's the whole thing. The whole thing. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, but this is the risk you take. When you decide to play in a pandemic, and I keep saying that, but that's sort of you know the decision that was made. I mean, again, I feel like you're okay as long as you're not putting people's lives at risk. And it, I haven't seen a situation yet that makes me feel like that the league or teams have put anybody's lives at risk. Um, it seems that they, you know they are doing aggressive testing. Um, so the good thing is that they're catching them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, they're doing the right thing by sort of, you know, making them sit. And I think the one thing last year when we were talking about this is that you would fear that, you know, hey, let's not test the star player today.
0: Right. We have a
2: big series. Let's just make sure right. that we don't test Garrett Cole um, heading <laughs> into this. But it, it certainly has not seemingly worked out that way. Like you've seen the range of players from star to bench. To minor leaders, you know, they're the ones who sort of, you know, it's been just a across the board that you've seen guys test positive. So, again, it's as long as they're being vigilant and there's, you know, they're being careful and and they're continuing to push for the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. I think that's the best you can do under the circumstances. And I think as long as you're not seeing players suffer any sort of severe issues and i think you're probably okay to just kind of go on this path if you want it's either that it, like,
1: it feels like the nfl's being more vigilant if you will
2: i mean certainly it seems that i mean i think like the problem with the nfl right is like you got 16 games you know like i think they realize right. every sunday is 10 games. exactly so if you have a guy who's got to miss 10 days that's like you know two 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 out of 16 games right so, like, that severely diminishes the product in a season that's not very long. Where in baseball, I mean, it's such a long season that, you know, injuries are part of the game anyway. So, like, having guys miss 10 days, the system is built to replace that. You know, it's it's sort of like you have a minor league system. And you can just bring guys now, you
1: know, up. 40-man rosters for...
2: 40-man for rosters. You, you know, like, the system is, is built for, for that kind of thing in baseball. Where in, in, in the NFL, I mean... You know losing a star player i mean ratings blah 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 all of that stuff when it start to affect sort of the money aspect of it and i think yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. is what worries the nfl
1: gotcha so i don't think it's bad now but like so when basketball starts up if we are let's say we, we are neither down nor up or simply kind of where are similar to where we are the first week of august um do you expect them to take a more baseball or football model do you know
2: i mean that's a, it's a really interesting question and i would. And I would tell you that, I mean, you know, one thing sort of that, that has been apparent throughout this whole pandemic is it's just so hard to make predictions. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think we all, you know, thought that, that we were heading in a different direction a couple months ago. And, you know, like the fact that there, that there are these variants are, are just, you know, concerning. Um, it's obviously something that makes you rethink certain Plans. I mean, even for us as employees, you know, the the New York Times moved our return to office, and now it's sort of like postponed. Definitely, is it? Yeah. Um, and I mean,
1: it, I, Look, I mean, we are we're recording on Wednesday to so Thursday because I'm going on vacation tomorrow. Like, like vacation, like first time vacation. Like, I, I am not on call to look at my phone for like nine years. And when we booked this, it felt like we were just going to go have a good time in California, right? And now. Like, all of a sudden, two weeks ago, we're like, man, we should find those vaccination cards and just put them in our bag in case we need them for some reason. You know what I mean? And and then it's like, well, like, we're probably not, you know, we're going to go to that nice restaurant. Maybe we'll just, like, order food or something and stay there. And it's, like, it's the whole thing. Because when we booked this trip, it felt like things were looking up, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think. No.
2: I mean, I think, listen, I think, again, if you're a vaccinated person, you have many, many less worries than if you're an unvaccinated person i mean
1: yeah for sure
2: so i mean i think like it, it does change sort of like your your sort of risk barometer if you're a vaccinated person it's just different and frankly that's just the the, the evidence is just overwhelming in that regard yeah um, no
1: question I, it's, it's you know so, but I, I have gone from like yeah I'm, I'm at the grocery store i'm not wearing a mask to wearing a mask just because and maybe it's wrong i don't know, like you read stuff about how even though i'm vaccinated like i could carry it and pass it on to someone it's more of a, like like i i don't need the mass to protect me i'm trying to be respectful of the rest of the world here
2: yeah i mean and i think listen the situation even with us at the times is you know i think what's become apparent is we could all do our jobs from home so why yeah. even put us in a situation where you know people may get sick or whatever like we don't have to you know we've been doing this for a year and a half if we have to do it for one more month, more it's okay. Kind of figure it out, right? Yeah, let's just see. You know, let's just see what happens. Um, you know, in a month we'll reevaluate and then see see what it's supposed to have. I mean, we're supposed to come back in September after Labor Day. Mm. Um, listen, maybe we just come back one month later. Uh, right. So it's just a matter of like, there's just no reason to to ask people to come back if if there's a minimal amount of risk involved.
1: So on that happy note, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Chelsea Janes, the national baseball writer for the Washington Post, uh, about the Dodgers Astros series and also what the Nats did at the deadline. Come back, talk about our musical guest, No Lights, who you are about to listen to. Read your emails, Moment of Culture. We'll catch up with Jorge on other things, COVID and hopefully non COVID. So stick around. (music) podcast at special guest time. Our special guest bio on the newspaper that she works for begins with Chelsea Janes is the national baseball writer in sports. (laughs) And that's going to keep me up all night trying to figure out what that is. But that's exactly what she is. She was once the Washington Post beat writer for the Washington Nationals. Uh, She then decided that uh, she... Wanda, even more toxic form of fandom to deal with and cover the 2020 presidential campaign. And now she's back as the national baseball writer and is currently in Los Angeles, California, where she is getting ready to watch Max Scherzer's debut in Dodger Blue and joining us from what I'm sure are luxurious accommodations. Jeff Bezos takes care of his people. From what <laughs> I hear. It's Chelsea James. Chelsea, how are you?
3: I'm good. Yeah, I'm actually like orbiting, you know, the Earth from a <laughs> did Bezos. You, did you get your own rocket? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sweet.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Do you at least get Amazon Prime
3: for free? I I don't if we do, no one told me. So <laughs> But now I gotta ask.
1: <laughs> so I, I, I wanna ask because like I you know, we talked about having you on this week, and it was kind of before I realized. I, yeah, I realized you were going to be in Los Angeles because you told me for for Scherzer's debut, and then I've kind of put two and two together. You're actually the the Dodgers, were, of course, playing the Astros, which was kind of the story of the night last night. We're recording this on Wednesday night, um, you were at that game. Um, you know, I watched the beginning of that game, and certainly was looking at Twitter and stuff like that. What was the? What were the vibes?
3: It was. It was a little bit sinister, to be honest with you. You know, like I was not in New York, obviously, perhaps not obviously for the Astros visit there, which I know was heated. But this one just it was very angry, which, you know, makes sense. Um, But yeah, it was it was loud. And, you know, people were just screaming cheater, you know, kind of from the beginning of batting practice on. And it was just I think I would say it was one of the more sinister environments I've ever, ever experienced in baseball.
1: Um. And then did it, they kept it up all night? It felt like.
3: Yeah, I think it ebbed and flowed a little bit later, and you know, I don't think it helped that Altuve had a couple hits, and, right. and the, the offense wasn't there for the Dodgers. But yeah, it was it was pretty consistent. I mean, the, you know, the trash can thing slowed down, fortunately, but yeah, it was it was. I expected to be just as good, bad, whatever tonight. It was it was pretty, you know, spirited. I would say.
1: That's what I was going to ask you, like, before the game, like, have they kind of gotten it out of their system or do you think it's going to be the same tonight as opposed to kind of celebrating their newfound days?
3: You know, that's a great question. Maybe it'll be a little different, but I feel like the Dodgers have enough people that they can cycle in two sets of 50,000 angry people to yell at the Astros. So I guess we'll see. But but yeah, it certainly it feels like there's a lot of energy there. Certainly like the first few innings I expect to be a little bit hectic again.
2: I mean, I just know from here in New York when they came here, um, they were booing the Astros after the Astros left. Like during the next series, they, <laughs> right. were, basically yeah. Saying, yeah. they were basically chanting <laughs> yeah. the fuck Altuve during the next series, which was not right. even the Astros. So, um, it's I, you know, I think people just love villains, and I think it's such an easy target that I think people like to get themselves riled up in an atmosphere that's already kind of riled up because of you know the pandemic and people have a lot of pent up anger. Um, so I think, it, I think that part of it probably feeds into it too.
3: Yeah, no, totally. It was kind of funny because, you know, Dusty Baker is pretty beloved in, in LA and he was walking around and people were yelling his name and then they remembered that he was an astro and started saying like, what are you doing with them? And he's just kind of like, I don't, what do you want me to say to this? Like, I thought we were waving and now we're angry. So it was, <laughs> it was actually really funny to watch and, and just kind of like a, you know, the fans are so conflicted. They barely know who they're yelling at, at, at this point.
1: Yeah, it's such a strange thing. I you I understand you're, you're booing laundry, but uh, you know after Guriel got scratched in the lineup due to an injury before the game, like there are three Astros on the field who were even on the 2017 team. Right. And it always sounds. It always just kind of feels weird for them to see them. You know, booing Kendall Graveman. <laughs> right. You know who's, right. Been an Ast- who's been an Astro for four days. Right. Exactly. Um, so you know you obviously you you went there to go see Max Scherzer. Um, A week before the deadline, uh, Ken Rosenthal was on the show, and I asked him directly, like, like, what do you think the chances of Max Scherzer getting traded at the deadline were? And again, this is a week before, and he said about 10%, and it kind of felt right. Yeah. And I didn't even ask him about Trey Turner, because no one in the world was talking about Trey Turner getting moved. Um, Like, it, it felt like the, the, at the last minute, the Nats kind of turned on a dime, and it went from it's probably not going to happen to, oh, my God, they have something done with the Padres. Oh, wait, there's other teams involved. Oop, there's, there was even a mystery team, you know. And, and then, um, you know, this thing happened. It seemed to happen real, real quick. Is, I guess, were you surprised by the, the, the switch getting flipped in Washington? Um, well, let's just start there. I'll, I'll follow up how the players were.
3: Yeah. You know what? I wasn't. I think I was surprised when they finally pulled the trigger because we had seen them in 2018 – Sort of consider a sell-off that would have included Harper, um, you know, and some deals like that, and they couldn't do it, and they ended up kind of like limping through a few waiver deals. So, but once it was pretty clear, you know, Wednesday and Thursday before the deadline, you know, everything we were hearing from their side is like Max is gone, and you know the Trey thing. I had I had asked a few people like, "Is this real?" and and they give the you know, "Only if we get an offer, we can't refuse" kind of answer. But the fact that they were even saying, like, maybe, to me indicated, you know, this is something they might do. This is probably something they want to do. And it's surprising only because I still haven't gotten a good explanation for why they didn't think they could just sign him to an extension and, and you know, lock up him in Soto and build around that. But I think this is an organization that is sometimes confusingly picky about who and where they spend money on. And so from that perspective, it makes a little bit of sense. But I, I would say that my sense of, of things is that it was surprising for everybody that Trey was included, I think including Trey. Um, but, you know, the Max part, less so, I think he was ready. I think they've, they've, you know, hit a point where they were like, we're not winning this year. We may not be winning next year. You know, let's get something for this.
1: Was, was there ever any indication from Turner – not that he ever said, I hate it here, I think, but just, like, you know, about looking forward to free agency or those kind of things you hear from players. Um, I, Or or did he seem, like, really content with it as a national?
3: He's a hard, hard guy to read, but he was saying all the right things. You know, that mm-hmm. he likes it here, that he was open to negotiating. You know, my understanding is that the last time they actually had any formal talks, as I think others have reported, was, you know, March of 2020, when it was six years, somewhere around 100 million, which compared to what we're seeing Lindor get and others now was is laughable. Um, and then, you know, the pandemic hit and then, you know, this spring they were going to talk. And, and I think there's some debate over whether the Nationals said they would offer something and didn't, you know, whether there was an expectation that things would go further than they did. But whatever happened, nothing happened, and I I don't think that was because Trey said you're never going to sign me. I think you know the sense that I get is that the Nationals looked at the numbers and said this isn't something we're going to do. But I don't think that was a Trey Turner thing. I think he would have been happy to stay you know indefinitely.
1: Do you think they go spend money elsewhere? It feels like they they have Juan Soto, they have you know some some tough commitments to like Strasburg in, at, at this point. Is this still like they felt for a while like? Obviously, they're a rich team. They felt for a while like a rich team who'd spend a lot of money. Um, are, do, do you feel like they're scaling back their spending?
3: Um, That's a good question. I have no, I don't think they know yet. I think that <laughs> they need to see, you know, if Josiah Gray turns out to be amazing down the stretch and Caber Ruiz looks amazing and they think that they've got two staples of, you know, something long term, then I think they probably look at this offseason and, and maybe try to build something that Max Scherzer wants to come back to. Maybe, you know, try to plug a few holes. Um, but it just doesn't seem like they're gonna be ready to, you know, make a full-on push again next year. You know, to me, dealing Max Scherzer said we're not gonna win in 2021. Dealing Trey Turner said we don't think we can win in 2022. And so I would not expect them to be out on the free agent market spending big. Does that mean they won't try to get one of the many shortstops available. And and I don't know, maybe maybe they do, but I don't think they think that next year's the end of the rebuild. I think this is gonna be maybe, you know, one more season out from, from making that big free agent spending push.
2: Chelsea, what do you think now the pressure is to sign Soto to an extension or to have to accelerate those talks? I mean, obviously the fan base is calling for it. The Tatis contract certainly put that at the forefront. Um, do you think that this sort of increases the pressure on them now?
3: I absolutely do. Um, I think – I don't know that they've ever been under more pressure to sign a, a good young position player, you know. Um, it was one thing to, to not sign Harper. I think by the end of that relationship, sort of everyone understood that he was going to ask for more than they wanted to give. But you've now let Anthony Rendon walk. You know, you've now let Trey Turner go, basically, Um you know, any other number of players besides Ryan Zimmerman that have been homegrown position players and really good have now gone elsewhere. And I think, you know, if it wasn't going to be Trey, then it has to be Soto. And it's fitting, is one word for it, that he's a Boris guy because those are the people that seem to get deals done with this team. Um, Anthony Rendon and Harper are exceptions, but it, it just always seems like, you know, they've got a high price Boris client that they either have to pony up for or let walk and i think this is going to be a really decisive one for them because you know if they can't keep soto i think you're going to have a lot of fans looking at that and saying well what was the point of selling you know what was the point of of trying to clear payroll if, if it wasn't to lock up you know one of the best hitters that that we've ever developed
1: and and where i i've max has max at a press conference since he got to the dodgers
3: he did. He did one yesterday, yep.
1: Does he seem happy? I, I he, Not a guy who strikes me as happy a lot of the time. But, like, <laughs> he's obviously an intense guy. But he's really pleased to, you know, not to get out, but maybe pleased to, you know, be with a team that's going to play into October.
3: Yeah, you know, in his press conference, I got to chat with him a little bit on the field. I think, he, he, I think he's good, you know. I think he knew this was coming. I think he was really he said even in the press conference, like he was in his head about where it was going to be and, and all of those calculations that went into the ten five rights. But I think he's like content to be here. I think he's, you know, I don't necessarily think as much as everyone else that he is now Dodger for life, going to sign here and stay. You know, I don't think that's necessarily a given. Um, but I do think that he knew it was coming and he's happy to be somewhere where he can win and you know, for him, the equations are usually pretty simple. You know, it's it's I want to win and have a chance to beat people, and and that's what he gets to do here. So I think for now he's fine. We'll see. We'll see how tonight goes, but I don't think he's like frustrated with the Nationals. I think he just kind of understood where things were headed.
1: Chelsea, and, uh, go ahead, Tori.
2: No, I was just gonna ask. You know, obviously we talk about the Cubs and the recent stint as an era, even if, even though there was only one World Series win. I mean, you covered this team for you know, what was the World Series era? I mean, how would you define it? I mean, obviously you have to see it as a success. They won one. Many teams don't. I mean, how? What, what sort of feelings do you have walking away from what was the sort of core of a team that won a championship?
3: You know, I think, I think two things. I think the first is that they, for all the criticisms that I think are sometimes fair of Nationals ownership, spending in weird places, not spending in weird places, they did year in and year out, you know, put teams together that were competitive. They added at the deadline. You know, they had a shot almost every year that I covered them and, you know, dating back to 2012. So you can't really complain on that front. I think the thing that is interesting is they will define this as a World Series winning era, but it could easily have not been. You know, that 2019 team was not by any means the best Nationals team in recent years. It was like not the team that was destined to win, but it is the team that makes everything else justifiable in hindsight, right? So if we're talking about this without a World Series, you can look back and say that Adam Eaton deal where they traded away Giolito, like, what were you doing? You know, you can look back and, and say things like, how do you let Harper walk? Or how do you sign Corbin to the deal you signed him to? Because in retrospect, like, those things <laughs> probably weren't super helpful to the franchise, but they won, so it worked. And so now they can look at these contracts and say, well, you know, we got that World Series. So for me, like, I, you know, I'm not saying they were terrible at putting a team together. I think they were competitive year in and year out. But I do think that they, you know, to the extent that you can be bailed out by a World Series, I think they were bailed out by the World Series because, you know, they really made some risky moves that, that sort of paid off, but that they, you know, they're now paying for.
1: Um, I, I want to get into you know, a little something different here, which is your your career path, which is after the Washington Nationals won a World Series, you went and covered the election <laughs> yeah. in the 2020. Um, and now you're back doing baseball. Uh, you know, I guess the question is like, did you just go, Hey, that sounds like a fun thing to do. I'll see how that goes. And was your return to baseball something like, Hey, that wasn't fun. I will go back to baseball. Or did they say, Hey, you know, there's this national writer spot opening for you. Like, like how did those decisions get made and how much of it was, you know, looking for new things?
3: Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I, They have been really good at the Post about cycling people off the beat, you know, the Nationals beat every four to five years, I think, for sanity purposes and, um, you know, just the grind is is what it is, as you know. But so I was kind of coming up to the end of that run. And I think the Post was looking for I get people who had not covered politics before to cover the 2020 campaign with sort of fresh eyes. And I fit that bill, and I was someone who had proven that I could travel effectively and sort of put up with all that. Yeah, I was so, gonna say,
1: like you said, they pull people off the beat for like you know their own Sandy's sake, and then they put you on the 2020 <laughs> election. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, no, that that's true. I actually had not thought of it in those terms, and now that you say it, it seems a little strange in <laughs> retrospect. But yeah, I I had I had like been open to doing something different just to see what it would be. Uh, and so when they asked if I you know wanted to go to Iowa in January, I You know, I was at the point of, like, not really even knowing what they meant. Um, And then when I put it together, you know, it's sort of an offer you can't refuse at The Washington Post to cover, you know, a a highly, you know, intense presidential election like that one. Um, So it was an honor to be asked and something that, like, I thought would be really interesting to try. I ended up, you know, I'm super grateful for that experience, but I really enjoy baseball. Like, I didn't leave Mm -hmm. baseball because I was sick of it. I've always loved it. Um, it's one of the few things I know a lot about in this life. Um, so I, I personally kind of just realized, like, I think in the same way that being a baseball beat writer requires you to really like what you're doing, or else it would be sort of a miserable grind of an experience. Uh, politics is very much the same way. And, you know, I think there were people at the Washington Post who would love that grind more than I did, basically. And it just kind of worked out that there was a you know, we have Dave Shinen, who's a great baseball writer who was doing national baseball, but it was an Olympic year and he's he's basically can write about anything and, and so that kind of freed him up to do his thing and um, I could slide back into baseball. So that for me was it's a much better fit, uh, which isn't really a comment on anything other than me and, and my inability to sort of handle the political world uh, and not lose my mind. It's just it's bruising and it's it's different. and uh, you know, I think there were people at our paper who could do a much better job than I could. <laughs>
0: Is it
1: something you think you might want to take like another shot at at a year that was um, less batshit insane?
3: <laughs> you know what? it i this I, I say this now I probably wouldn't have said it a year ago. I think the craziness was really good. i I really did feel like i I understood so much more about the world because of all the craziness because. Uh-huh. Part of, like, that craziness is you just hear from everyone about everything, right? There's no score. So everything you write is a a debate. It's like you are either on this side or this side, and people are going to tell you that and yell at you and call you and, and make their opinions known. And you just, like, start to realize how, like, small your vision is of things. And maybe those people aren't all right, but it really kind of taught me to, like, you know, for a lot, you know, it sounds really dumb, but just to kind of like put myself in people's shoes that I wouldn't normally. So I think for that reason, the craziness was good and everyone cared and, and wanted to, these things to be right and accurate and good. And I really appreciated that. So I don't know if I would like find as much, um, in, in a year where it was calmer and people were less invested if that ever happens, because, you know, I think that investment really, really provided a lot of motivation, um you know in something that was otherwise pretty you know frankly difficult for me
0: um what
1: what can baseball obviously you dealt with a lot of spin people in politics like (laughs) you said like you know you wrote something i'm sure someone's calling you saying you know this is wrong this is that like is there something is that a is that a good thing but like b is there something that, that like the baseball pr world could learn from politics and vice versa
3: Ooh, um you know, I think so. I think the the spin was a lot at times. Uh, I think, I think the baseball PR world is learning this, but I think that empathy is is lacking. I think there's really been one perspective that's dominated baseball for a really long time, um, and that is, you know, white. You know, middle-aged guys who've always been in the game and that's like not meant to be offensive to white middle-aged guys in the game, but it's just like that's the only people that have been there. And so, you know, when you have other people in the room, I think I think it like on a situation, for example, like Trevor Bauer, you know, when when Stan Caston makes a joke about wishing they could talk about something else instead, like to Stan Caston and people of that ilk, it's not it's not like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And you know, to me as someone who's come up in the baseball world, I can see how you just like shrug that off. But I think you know the more people you have in the room, you realize like why that would hurt someone, um, and it's just it. I think it's just like opening up the vision a little bit is is something that you can learn, and you know in politics you have to because interest groups are going to be all over you no matter what. And I think you know baseball is starting to get there, and maybe that's just because it's had to confront a lot of things publicly in in the last couple of years. But I sure. you know, I, I think it's it's coming, and it's it's funny. There's actually a few people that have come from politics and now are in various PR. Stations in baseball, and it's it's really fun to sort of talk to them about it because, you know, strangely enough, baseball is a much saner world, and we are uh, always appreciative of that, and you know, just kind of the the difference in scale of the craziness in baseball versus politics.
2: Chelsea, did you ever have any of the people that you you encountered on the the, the presidential beat wanting to just talk baseball, knowing your background? Like, did that help <laughs> yeah. you? Did that help yeah. sort of like create relationships?
3: Oh my god, for sure. Cause I so I actually switched early in 2019, which was late in Bryce Harper free agency. So for the first like three months, everyone was just asking me where Bryce was going to go, and that was like great. I mean, the overlap is unbelievable. You know, between the again, no offense, middle-aged white guys in politics and baseball, it's just like that. They they work perfectly. You know, that's like all anyone knows about. So I oh I I used that to my advantage over and over again. Until I I no longer could, and you know I started covering you know a bunch of different people whose you know PR staffs weren't as obsessed with baseball. I felt I was at a great disadvantage, but yeah, it, it was actually hilarious how how much the overlap is, and I think that's true, you know, of a lot of things. Like a kind of funny thing that we've heard, you know, that people like Brett Kavanaugh, you know circulate like Washington Post sports -hmm. sports writing as opposed to like other stuff to kind of show clerks how to write and stuff like people care about baseball and it's like it's kind of funny to to think of that overlap and you know especially in D.C. where we've seen like people show up at games all the time it's just it really was an effective tool for me to kind of bridge gaps
2: it it was so weird for me I mean I, I covered the Orioles for the post um, and I, I remember when the whole thing with like, you know, the Senate and the steroid stuff was going on, mm-hmm. like there were people that knew my Oriole stories, from, <laughs> like some of the <laughs> AIDS AIDS that I dealt with, like in trying to find more about like, you know, when Paul went and testified, like there were, or when they, when they investigated him after he got uh, tested positive, like it was just funny, like there were people who sort of knew my game stories and knew <laughs> wow. yeah, that I had, re- yeah, it was so bizarre, but like, you're right, I mean, especially when you see so many people in politics tweet about the Nationals. I see that constantly. Yeah,
3: yeah it's super interesting. And I think, you know, um, the the overlap was really something. And like Bernie Sanders did a lot of stuff advocating for, you know, the minor leagues not to you know, mm-hmm. cut, cut affiliates. And so I would always get the emails about the minor league things that he was doing. Like, I think they thought that was like the one thing I would certainly write about. Um, and his campaign manager was a, a former Harvard baseball player. So I just like, you know, those connections were were prevalent, and those people wanted to talk a lot about baseball, and maybe if I had talked a little more politics, you know, I would have had a few more scoops here and there, but I was grateful to talk about baseball. It was always a relief.
1: And, and you know, in your return, you've kind of gone from being the Nationals beat writer to, you know, more of a national writer, um, so it's kind of a, a, a wider swath to work with. Has it meant less travel? Like, I know it's still a lot of travel, but is it, you know, a little bit of a better lifestyle as the national writer?
3: So far, it has been, definitely. Um, I'm not sure I'm doing it right, so maybe that'll change as I, as I evolve, but so far it has been. Um, actually, this current trip I'm on is probably the longest I've been on since the pandemic, so. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely been a little easier and just a little bit less, you know, the daily beat stuff, like less, you know, injured groin writing and stuff like that. Not that, you know, we don't all love an injured hamstring story now and then, but I think yeah, you, know, you just eliminate some of the the busy work that beat people do that they wish they weren't doing. Um, it it does kind of lighten things up a little bit
1: and is is kind of your schedule for the rest of the season basically follow the playoff races, then go to the postseason games?
3: Yeah, I think that's it. i might I might get sucked into that that Iowa game they're staging just because I've now you know bled in Iowa on the campaign trail and have to go <laughs> see that. But. But yeah, I think that's mostly it, which is great. And and it doesn't hurt that a lot of those races will be centered in Southern California. So I'm not complaining about that.
1: Uh, well, Chelsea, I, want to, I know you got to get to the ballpark. I want to thank you for for coming on. Um, we'll see what the crowd is like uh, at Dodger <laughs> Stadium tonight. and uh, I mean, for, for now, it's, uh, if the people want to follow you on Twitter, they go to, I have, I have it open right here, Chelsea underscore Janes underscore yes. is not her middle name it is the character you put between <laughs> chelsea and Jane's. Yes. and anything else you want to plug chelsea besides a uh, free amazon prime and rockets with a subscription <laughs> to the washington post
3: no no nothing i gotta go ask if i get free amazon prime now that's that's the main takeaway here
1: you should <laughs> I
2: mean, we, we have an employee discount to the new york times store so we get that at least <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: exactly i must i i'm gonna go check this out right now i certainly like pay most of my salary back to amazon prime so i you, know, you would think
1: You'd think they'd give you Amazon yeah, Prime.
3: Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> Come on. Thanks for coming on, Chelsea. Yeah,
3: thanks
1: for having me. Thanks, Chelsea. Podcast. Thanks to Chelsea James for joining us before she heads over to the ballpark for tonight's Astros Dodgers game. Uh, musical guest: No Lights. No Lights is yet another band that Ian Miller is involved in. It's all he does. He's in eighty-seven thousand bands. Um, this involves uh, both Matt and Dan, who are in Early Graves, San Francisco kind of post-punk stuff. Uh, Dan also plays drums. And another one of Ian's bands, Walled City, who are amazing um Matt stepped away from music for a while to become a firefighter and now he's back with No Lights. It's described as indie rock meets death rock and new wave, but also punk. Uh I should note that Early Graves is also playing their last show ever in Los Angeles in December with Converge and Cave In and people should go see that. But if you want to know more about No Lights, go to nolightsband.bandcamp.com and thanks to Ian and No Lights for giving us music to play on the show. Uh, if you are in a band or have friends in a band, get in touch, uh, chinmusic at fangraft.com, which is the same email address you should use to send us emails. Are you ready to go through emails, Jorge?
2: I just want to clarify, is that Ian Miller of the Ian Miller of of At Productive Outs as well?
1: Yes. When he's not doing that, he is in um, literally, I think, five or six active bands.
2: Yes, I mean, I know. I obviously knew he was a Yeah, I'm just, yeah. I just, I just wanted to point out that he is also has a as hilarious Twitter account.
1: Yes, and and, and <laughs> will likely and will likely be co-hosting the show at some point. Uh, oh, nice.
2: Yeah, I, I can't believe you had me on twice before you had him on.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> He's harder to schedule. That's all. Um, our first email comes from Mike this goes back to what we talked about with the with the Twins and and Jose Barrios. My question is this. How does a Major League Baseball team misread a market by enough to go from not trading Barrios to moving them? Given all the data that all teams have and the demand for quality starting pitching, it just seems beyond the realm of possibility that a Major League organization wouldn't have realized there would be a market for a guy like Barrios. Or that the market would have well exceeded their in-house assessment of the potential market. So what kind of faulty information goes into something like misreading the trade market? Um, I, faulty is a funny word there, but like, so, and we're going to get into this with another email at the end here, um, which is, you know, trades are a barter system and, and it's not an economic system and uh, models and data can't predict those things as, as well as you want to. And there's a psychological aspect. And for so many, once it became clear that they were listening on the player, he became the number one pitching prospect, the number one pitching target for most teams because for most teams unless you were the Dodgers Giants or Padres Max Scherzer wasn't coming there so all of a sudden this was your number one dude and and I and, and that kind of thing and the scarcity i think created a, a market more than they had and this is not a team that has dumped a lot and i think this is you know maybe the first time that that administration is at a dump. I think their first year they trade a few expiring contracts, but to uh, you know, give away a controllable guy, maybe it was their first time. And so I think it's hard to create those kind of things because it is not a perfect one for one market and scarcity and dynamics can change things dramatically, which is think, why we saw what we saw.
2: And I think you have to remember that people's perceptions of what team strategies are, are often built on how much access they give media. To, mm-hmm. to to so that they know so that the media knows how much sort of about the game plan is i mean it's certainly possible that the twins did not misread the market they knew exactly what they wanted to do they just weren't telling the media about it i mean it happens a lot and i think like you know the twins have always kind of been this organization that has been pretty tight-lipped i mean it, they're not ones that you hear constantly um you know in rumors and I certainly as that when i was a beat reporter they weren't in that organization that you sort of felt always was leaking um so it's you know it just because you didn't know about it doesn't mean that that's what sort of it wasn't happening essentially you know like they were evaluating they were probably looking at what they had and then the offers just got better
1: um yeah exactly it's it's, it's- tough to say I mean, it's interesting like, you make a point about like how much kind of transparency maybe a front office has and um keep in mind some of these things happen especially some like the smaller deals or some of like the little like we get that extra leave or whatever um and next thing you know you're seeing uh like all sorts of praise for what a great job the front office did i remember making a trade and then there was and it was a very small trade it was it was a a you know, guy who would be somewhere between the 24th and 25th man on a roster for a, a very, very fringy prospect. Smallest of deals, right? And there was a minor hang up on the medical, and then I'm trying to get the, get it done and push it through. And and the general manager of the team on the other side at one point said, I don't even want to do this deal. Like, this is, I'm getting pushed by my director on this. I want to do this deal. And like, and we got it, it got done and things got solved and fixed. But, like, trades sometimes get made that the GM doesn't want to do. It's just like, yeah, whatever. We'll go get that extra lever. It's fine if that's who you guys want. Um, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever been part of a deal where everybody in the room nodded their head yes.
2: I mean, and I don't think you'd want to be in a... No, a it'd room, be horrible. Yeah. I mean, I think you want to have those kinds of debates. And you want... Every deal should be like, you know, there's some sub <laughs> disagreement. Certainly not like mass disagreement, but just <laughs> enough where like... You're having an active discussion, and you bring up things that maybe you hadn't considered. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, like we, we, what if in two years this guy, you know, we've had these reports on this prospect. I mean, it could really save us in this aspect. I mean, and, you know, there's just so many things to consider that, like, I, you know, there, you should have some sort of disagreement and discussion. And maybe again, going back to this whole situation with the twins, is maybe that the person who spoke to a reporter was not one of the ones that was gonna have that disagreement or what, you know, like it just so, it so varies on who you talk to, when you talk to people that it's hard to really say that somebody's strategy is so, you know, locked in uh, at any particular moment because things change so quickly.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Our next email comes from Derek and Derek says, I'm thinking about the trade of the Dodgers and the Nationals and the return that the Nationals received being all prospects coming from a system widely known for their player development. It's been said that the Dodgers player development system is ahead of the rest of the league. So it made me wonder, would the nationals player development group look to pick the brain of the newly acquired players and what has made their player development group so successful? Could they learn of new processes that they can look to replicate going forward? Or is it more nuanced that what the players may see is different from what the front office and player dev values? Um, you can ask. Uh, it's it's. You might get an interesting answer. You might get a little bit of insight. I think it's tough sometimes because one of the biggest challenges for a team is trying to, um, for lack of a better term, kind of translate the data into player talk. And so he, you're just getting kind of one end of a telephone conversation. You kind of going down the wrong path. Um, it was always interesting to talk to players acquired about this kind of stuff. And... Um, you know, when I was with the Astros, the Astros were very transparent with players as far as data. Like they, they, they didn't do a ton of translation. They said, "No, these are not stupid human beings. We can just show them the data, explain how the data is used, um, and and just kind of take that layer away." And it's always interesting to hear us how how they would get it, and they would then they tell you how you know the team they just came from did it. And it was always everyone does things a little bit different, and, and the way they measure things might be different, the numbers might be different. I think it's hard to get. I think it's you're going to get like. You're going to learn what their PowerPoint template looks like. More, you're going to learn about what they're doing to make that PowerPoint. If that makes sense,
2: yeah. I mean, I don't. It's very hard for a player to have that
1: type of insight. Yeah. I mean,
2: especially with a player like who came up in the Dodger system, they don't know any other way. So it's yeah. like when you ask them, "Well, what did you do different in the in the Myers?" It's like they're not going to know that. You know, right. and it's and it's also like you know some of the like most frustrating conversations I ever had as a reporter. You know, was asking players what essentially boiled down: well, Why are you so good? <laughs> and they're like, I don't, I don't know, man. I'm just good. You know, like, I don't know what makes me good. So a lot of them, you know, there's a lot of players who just can't capture any, like, you know, a nuance that, that happened in A-ball that allowed them to be better. You know, they just, you know, they, they know that players who are good make adjustments. And, you know, it's hard for them to say, well, you know, I wouldn't have made this adjustment if I wasn't on this team. I think there's a certain amount of pride as well in a player who will say, well, I would have made this adjustment. Yeah, it right. Wasn't the, it wasn't because my a ball coach, or, or you know, happened to be in the Dodgers system. You know, I'm good enough to be here, and I just made the adjustment. So it's like it's hard for a player to, to narrow it down to what an organization did differently than another one. I think.
1: And if I remember correctly, I think even when when because Gray took Scherzer's spot in the rotation started and like got there the night before something like that and, and i think in the pre-game presser Davey martinez said yeah we're not throwing any anything at him right now we're just gonna let him go you know they have the i don't the briefest of, of advanced meetings i'm sure they just you know sat down with the catcher and said this is what i throw and they just went like there was no time for anything else
0: yeah i
2: mean um, i also think each organization believes or i mean I mean, I would have yeah. to think that each organization thinks they're doing the right thing, you know. Like, so it's like it's like I don't know if you know you would have the Nationals have Dodgers players come in and be like, "Hey, please tell us how to be good organization," you know.
1: Like, I feel oh, like, yeah, not for the most part. There are there's a lot of thought that the Dodgers have a couple of things figured out that other teams don't. There's a lot of kind of it's, it's 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 a bit of a paranoia. That I mean, the Dodgers so, have I, some I, stuff figured out. I
2: mean, I guess in the same way, right? That, that like you know teams worry about training with the, with the Rays, Right. You know, like they they see something in a guy, well, why, you know, what are we not seeing in this guy? I Mm. mean, I guess in the same way, but I'm just saying like, I think each organization feels they're doing something right. Right. I mean that they don't have to try to re reinvent what completely what they're doing. You know, the person who makes a decision that they have to reinvent what they're doing means that they're going to clear out the front office that's in place. So, you know, (laughs) that's what usually happens.
1: Our last email comes from Arthur and this is what we're talking about earlier. Uh, and Arthur says, barter systems are inefficient. I enjoy your podcast and I teach Southeast Asian history. If your podcast episodes were for sale under a barter system, would you be willing to trade them to me for some lectures on Vietnamese history? It seems unlikely and even less likely that we could trade our respective ramblings for clothing, bicycle repairs, baseball tickets, a cold bottle of Boeing or palatial accommodations. But baseball effectively operates a barter system. If a team has an elite player that they need to sell, they can't just sell him for cash at a market value. Instead, they have to find another team to barter with and can exchange assets only for what that one other team is willing to offer in return. How would baseball run differently? If, say, the Blue Jays give up, and then they sell Marcus Simeon for cash, which they use to buy four prospects they really like from four different teams, instead of settling for two prospects they don't love but can live with for just one other team. Would the overall quality of the game improve due to more efficient allocation of resources? As someone with front office experience, would you prefer to be able to sell players for cash and buy whichever players you prefer or is bartering part of the charm? The system I'm describing is essentially how European sports operate, though I realize questions in the what-if-baseball-was-like-soccer genre are probably a bit teased at the point. Jorge, you're a soccer fan. Can you explain this system? Because I do see this, and I don't get it, where they're like, you know, Johnny Soccer Player is going to go to Tottenham this year, 50 million bucks. Like, are they literally just selling contracts? It's so
2: weird. Contracts mean nothing in European (laughs) soccer. Like literally, okay. you you have a guy who's on a you know a six year deal, and he'll get sold to another team in year two, and they basically just rip up that contract, and the player will sign with the other team.
0: So, so it's so like it's
1: not guaranteed at all.
2: It's guaranteed. No, I mean until the player agrees. Like the player is agreeing to go to the other team because they're going to get a new contract. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So so like if a player gets released by a team, the team still owes him that money. It's just the fact that when a player has the option of going to another team, it it will include a new contract. So it's essentially like you're basically the team is buying the option to negotiate with that player.
1: And okay, so 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 the player is not does have some control over the situation oh
2: players have all the control over the situation
0: like it sounds ho-
1: cause, like you can't like you, you can't like you know uh, you can't sell this player's contract to england and have him go i i hate england they don't put any ice in your drinks it's horrible i don't want to play in england like he can't he has to be in, in on it and, and ready to do this
2: absolutely because he's got to sign a contract with that new team so like that is there,
1: a, is there like a free agency aspect like do they have, to have so much quote-unquote service time
2: there's no service time. Like, you know, once, you know, you're a young prospect, you, you sign a deal. I mean, you can, you can go on what essentially what they call a free transfer, which is your contract runs out. And then you can, you know, you're absolutely free agent, but teams never allow that because then they get no money back out of that. So if I'm, if I'm a player who has like, you know, I'm I'm like a sort of a smaller market team and I have like this superstar player who wants to go to like a Barcelona, you know, I will I will try to sell him to Barcelona in year two or three of a five-year contract. Because if it gets to year four, then, you know, you don't know if the player will be like, I'll just play it out and just go sign to whatever I want. So you want to get something back, which is essentially money um, from when you allow, like you're basically selling the right to the player to go to that, to that team. But, you know, again, like the player... Who is who is under contract can choose not to negotiate with the other team. So it has to definitely right. be the player can say I'm not
1: going to go play in Germany or play in Italy or wherever. I'm only I'll, I'll, or I'm only playing a French or a Spanish league or something.
2: Exactly. So the player has essentially all the control. <clears> um, have, I mean, have,
1: have we? Do you know if we found historically that the small market teams who sell these players for a ton of money, if they actually use that money to buy prospects or buy more players, or do they tend to just pocket it?
2: I mean, some some teams pocket it. Some teams do, you know, have a nice sort of like player development system. But it's usually just, you know, like in soccer, I mean, the smaller teams never win. Um, They never win the league. Um, It's always sort of like, it's pretty much accepted that that's sort of the way it goes. You can pretty much slot teams by what their budgets are. Um, So in some ways, the standings are fairly predictable in the sense of like, you know, the top five teams will usually be these teams. The, the bottom five team will usually be five, these teams. And then the middle ones are, you know, so, so, so many variables can happen that you can slot some mm-hmm. wherever in the middle. But, you know, usually we'll know who the top teams are and who the bottom teams are. It's, and, you know, like, the, like, you know, if you're a small team and you suddenly, you know, are able to sell a player who you developed for a lot of money, you can invest in younger players. But essentially, you'll be selling those players again, <laughs> you know, right. if, if you develop them, because like your goal is to stay up in the, in the, in the highest possible league, you know, like because we have the system where the, the, the teams that are bad, the top bottom three teams in the Premier League will go down a level. So it's like these teams are just kind of just trying to stay up in that, in the sort of the top league.
1: Right, right. Um, so this, I think this would be a good system for baseball.
2: I mean, I think, you know, I don't know that the teams would want this. I mean, I think like they I think they like the fact that you're getting players in return, because if you get money back, like you don't know, like there's still a possibility that like, yeah, OK, you'll say you'll sign three top prospects. But if the three, three top prospects you like end up signing somewhere else because they just like the better team, they like the other team, then you're kind of screwed. You have this money that you can't really use to better your team, you know, so I think. At least when you have a system where you, where you're bartering players, like the twins can pick which players they get back. And so they know Mm -hmm. they'll get, they'll Mm -hmm. get something out of it in terms of players. Um, it's more of a crapshoot if you just sell a player for money and then you only get money, you know, and so much can go into, you know, like if, even if you want to reinvest it in free agency, there's no guarantee that a certain player will want to sign with you. So. At the very least, teams are guaranteed to get a certain amount of player, you know, like you'll get players if you under the system that this has.
1: Um, if you want to send us an email, do so. It's chinmusic at fangrefts.com. You got we got a lot this week and keep them coming. Uh, it's time to catch up with Jorge, our dear friend. Uh, four and a half months ago you co hosted the show. And you were doing then what you're doing now, working for the New York Times, editor, Metro editor, with a focus on the pandemic. We didn't really talk about it, but did you feel that if you came on four and a half months later, you'd that would still be your beat? And follow up, are you exhausted from this being your beat?
2: I mean, it's, you know, again, I think one of the things we've learned is it's hard to predict, but I think, you know, I remember us talking about, you know, can I do stuff if I get vaccinated? And my answer was very yeah. clearly yes. And and it's been proven. Yes, you can do a lot of stuff when you get vaccinated and go to bars and go to restaurants. That's certainly, I don't feel that that's changed at all. Um, and, and I think it, this goes back to something that we were talking about in the baseball COVID discussion is about, you know, I, I still think that we're sort of learning how to talk about this in sort of like uh, the right way. I mean, you know, breakthrough cases, you know, and I've seen a lot of sort of like medical experts sort of make this point. It's like, I think we just have to gauge them in the sense of severity, right? I mean, when we're talking Mm. about them in great in just society in general, it's about whether you end up in a severe situation, right? And in baseball, we're talking about whether it means Garrett Cole can't pitch tomorrow. So it's like, you know, those are two different things. you know, Garrett Cole's life is not in seemingly in danger. He's going to be okay. He will be able to lead a normal life after having been vaccinated, having had a breakthrough infection and having had what a, what seems to be mild symptoms. So, right. um, and I think that is sort of like the way that we sort of need to talk about it in terms of society, right? I mean, that is not a bad outcome, even though if you tested positive, it's not a bad outcome. Like the bad outcome is if You end up hospitalized, and you end up with severe COVID, or, you know, heaven forbid, you end up dead. I mean, those are the things that we all need to worry about, not if we get mildly sick. So I think some of the breakthroughs, you know, statistics in general are are very easy to misread about Mm -hmm. what that means. Um, Yeah, I I mean, there's
1: like I think it was like an AP headline that was like, "There's been 125,000 breakout cases," according to one estimate, and someone said and someone responded like that that scares you there's been 125,000 and someone responded like if so if you do the math it's 0.03% of vaccinated people you know and you can mess with these numbers and, and scare people or think about them rationally
0: yeah
2: i mean but also i mean how many of those 100 whatever thousand actually had severe symptoms or any sort of right. like anything more than mild i mean that's that's where i think the nuance gets lost is is like it's okay to talk about breakthrough infections as a thing let's just learn to talk about them and what they mean and in the nuance about it i feel like sometimes because of the politicized environment we can't talk about it one way or the other like you have to pretend that you know breakthroughs aren't a thing or don't mean anything or you have to say that they're the worst thing ever like there's no nuance Mm -hmm. in the middle ground which is really where where reality lies reality lies is that yeah, I mean, it's a concern. There's breakthroughs, but it's also reassuring that the breakthroughs, for the most part, are not resulting um, in you know severe outcomes. You know, I think you know we we did a story last week looking at New York City hospitalizations, and you know there was a statistic um, that one hospital gave us about you know who was in their ICU, and there was like I think at the time they had five people, um, and I may be misremembering the number exactly, but it was around that many. Um, And, you know, they told us like four of them were young. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like, you know, it sort of scares you um, into sort of like, wow. And you can make sort of all kinds of assumptions. And then we dug a little deeper and found out, okay, for, you know, I think it was like three of those people were, you know, had some kind of immunocompromised system. Mm. So now we're talking about a different, you know, dynamic that we're talking about. So it's not, you know, like we can't, like, let's not make a generalization about young people. In this situation, it was about people who certainly had some risk involved beyond what, you know, a, a, a young person who's, you know, healthy and doesn't have any sort of those right. immune system issues. So I think, you know, it's just it's just becoming really difficult to talk about it in a way that is sort of, you know, doesn't go into panic, but also doesn't go into denial. I mean, so mm-hmm. we have to sort of try to talk about it and realistically. Like, let's listen. Each day, we all have our certain risk barometers that we that we sort of have to weigh in our head, and, and when we go out and we go to a restaurant, I'm a vaccinated person. You know, I actually had COVID before, so I'm feeling that my risk is lower and pretty good. You know, in terms of where my protection is, is pretty good.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um. So I may do certain things that other people who have a higher risk category might not and should not. Um, people who are immunocompromised, maybe people who have sort of kind of like underlying conditions that may make them more susceptible. There's no reason necessarily to put yourself at that risk. Um, so we each have our own sort of like personal, unique situations that we all have to sort of assess and realize and, and understand what the risk is.
1: Um- you know, you've been on this for a while now. Like, I, I, like, are you, have you had enough of the, have you had enough COVID in your life? Like, it's, it. this is, this is your job. Like, you have to spend eight hours doing this every day or more. Um, You know, you had a delay. Uh, You, you know, you, you got back to me on, on just a stupid text and you're like, oh, it was a super crazy day. And, and you know, because you were dealing with the story of New York City requiring um, proof of vaccination for some places like gyms and restaurants. Um. Like, this is in your face every day, whether you like it or not, because it has to be for you to do your job. Um, like, like, what is your, you know, level of, of just kind of fatigue here on, on covering this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think I would like to cover other things. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to not have to think about a pandemic, both as a person and as a professional. Um, it does, you know, it, it certainly, you know, has gotten more difficult as the time goes on. And, you know, you want to be able to move on again. And, and this is also like as a person. I mean, I think you just want to be able to sort of say we're we're headed in this direction and it's positive. And, and I still think we're headed that way. But, you know, it's now we've hit this bump. So we have to be, we have to deal with it. Is that all positive.
1: this is? Is this just a bump, you think?
2: I think it is. I mean, I think, okay. you know, I, I don't think.
1: Because it can't become a, a huge nightmare because we actually do have, like, it's not good that we're only whatever 60%. Vaccine. But we are, and that helps smooth the bump, right?
2: Exactly. I mean, I think, okay. you know, I mean, just to put it in perspective, I mean, and we all have our trauma and we all have our sort of like, sort of shock from, from what happened last year um, from other places it was during the winter. I mean, you know, when it got really bad, it was really scary and really bad. And I think we all sort of like panic and worry about that. But the numbers are just... In comparison, are just not anywhere near what was, especially in New York City. It was not anywhere near what we saw in April of last year, or May. I mean, and this is not to minimize anybody who, you know, who may die or may may get severe. No, I understand, sick. but like it's, it's just, just it's just. But not, there are
1: places where it's worse, like Florida, right? Like if there's places where they're setting hospitalization records and stuff like that.
2: Sure. I mean, I think you know that. In, you know, in terms of when you're looking at death. And it's hard for me to speak Florida because I, I don't daily look at Florida. Um, right. I, can, I can speak with, you know, pretty good authority over New York. And I can say that, you know, right now we're averaging about 1,300 cases per day, new cases per day. Again, you know, the hospitalizations are about like, you know, 45 new ones a day, which when you think about, you know, we were in April thousands of hospitalizations a day. I mean, that right. was... Three. We, we will not see that again in New York. I feel pretty confident about that. Mm. You know, will we see a bump? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bump. We're in the middle of a bump. I don't think we'll get to even what it was in the winter here in New York. I don't think we'll approach that. But because like for the factors that you said, I mean, we have a, a population that is vaccinate, vaccinated, We have a population who will have gotten sick and they will have had it and they have protection that way. Um, but you know, what we what we may see, and unless the numbers, the vaccination rates get better, is just this sort of recycling of variants that will mm-hmm. make it inconvenient for most, and you know, deadly for others. Um, and and it's a, a cycle that I hope that we can break. Um, and and hopefully, you know, some of these measures can help with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we'll, we'll, we're living in this reality for a little while, Um, and again, it's about sort of like, just sort of having perspective on where we are and where we're gonna be in a month. I mean, I I personally do think this is a bump, Um, and then we'll sort of, it'll sort of even out again and again, you know, whether there will be another bump after that depends on how much better the vaccination numbers get.
1: And, um, man, we talked about it yesterday, so New York City did announce that they are you know requiring a proof of vaccination for rest indoor dining gyms things like that right um like what's the general response to that in new york city which obviously is a very different city politically than you know los angeles or denver or tampa um it's you know it's its own unique identity of a place like what was the reaction to that and is there a chance of that growing and and becoming a reality elsewhere
2: I mean, I think the reality, the, the chances it becomes reality elsewhere, I think is very high. I think, I think we are looking towards a future of mandates. I think I, I would, I would just from, you know, our reporting and just conversations I've had, I think there was a general surprise at how quickly we hit a wall with the vaccinations. Mm-hmm. And so I don't necessarily think that um, cities, at least New York City, thought that it would have to consider this at this point. Um, you know, certainly not in the summer. I mean, I think they maybe thought maybe by the end of the year they may have had to do it. But, you know, we, they hit the wall quickly. And so they had to sort of recalibrate. And I think the general sentiment about it in New York is, is I think, you will have it be certainly more accepted than in a place where a lot of the restrictions have been sort of protested. Mm-hmm. Um, let me certainly you have pockets of New York City that have, you know, not been incredibly happy about any restrictions um so it's not necessarily going to play well in those neighborhoods but i think in general i think people want wanted these restrictions we're pushing for them and i think they'll be fine i think you you already had many places here in new york city that were doing it and now i feel they, you know places feel they have the support of the city to do them because you know if i'm a business owner it's hard i mean it's hard to know at yeah one. the enforcement
1: aspect is a real challenge. Yeah,
2: it's an enforcement aspect. You you don't want to like threaten, you know, your 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 profit margin at a time mm-hmm. when you're already struggling. You wanna keep your staff safe at a time when s- staff is hard to find. And so you have all these things to sort of weigh in. At least now they can basically say, Hey, this is what the city wants. And now it's not my decision, it's what the city wants. And I think for the most part i think you're going to see restaurant owners just happy that you know they don't have to make that decision that that decision was right. made for them
1: why isn't that the case at the airport at this point i'm going to the airport tomorrow in case i didn't mention this to you i'm going like sh- shouldn't it be shouldn't it be required to be vaccinated to walk into an airport at this point
2: yeah i mean that's you could certainly make that argument i mean i've i've in the last couple of months i've you know made two trips to um one to california one to mexico city um and yeah i mean you're in situations where like you know you're indoor for a long time <laughs> yeah. and you and people you know like people are eating and they take their masks
1: in a metal tube it. for four and a half hours
2: yeah it's it's a little trickier because i think you probably are dealing with like federal mandates at that point which
1: yeah but you have to, you yeah. have to wear a mask the whole way now right yes they got that put in place. Why can't they do this?
2: Well, I mean, the the, the places that do it are the airlines themselves, because I think they're trying yeah, to create right, they're right. trying to create an atmosphere where people they don't discourage people from wanting to fly. So, um, it is trickier. I mean, I don't you know the the federal government hasn't really sort of you know shown any willingness to to do mandates for the general public. Um, and so, you know, it falls on localities, but then you have these sort of like in between spots where you're talking about airplanes and things like that, that are probably require some federal mandates to be able to sort of pull that off. So will there be airlines? I would be surprised if you saw airlines mandate vaccinations, just because I think it, I think they, they're just, it's just too much economic, revenue. yeah, too much revenue, too much economic instability at this point for them. To be able to do something like that and you know the choice to to eat at home or eat at a restaurant and that's a different choice than to you know fly and go see your parents so i think that that's they don't want to discourage people from using their service
0: i don't think
1: um when you come host the show again in four and a half months in january of 2022 we'll COVID still be at the front of most many people's minds or it will be something that we're finally talking about as in our past.
2: I think, I mean, I, I generally think that we will have reached a, a pretty decent point in the pandemic in January. Listen, I think Covid's a reality for the next couple of years in some way. And I'm not saying in, in a way that mm-hmm. is a huge risk for people, but it is going to be like, you know, like a flu, you know, like the flu season. It never
1: just goes away like someone hits a switch.
2: Yeah, there's no, there's no switch. We're like, up, nope, no more COVID. We've, re- we've reached a certain level. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, <laughs> I think you'll see, you'll see people, you know, the population's immune system develop, and in, into where it's going to affect people in a different way. But it's not going away forever. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's it'll be around in some form. But I do think, you know, optimistically, by January, we should be in a in a good place. And I think, you know we we are nearing the point where we're going to have you know fda full approval of the vaccine so you're going to see some more harder mandates i think you're going to go see i think you're going you will see the numbers improve in terms of vaccination rates um and you know i just think there's just a lot of other people who are you know like well by january it will be one year since the vaccine will have been being administered to people and you know, and the people are like, "Well, let me see. Let me wait one year and make sure that nobody happens, nothing happens to somebody who took it." You'll have right. those people that now have that evidence. So, I mean, I think you'll just have it's sort of a different dynamic. I think, and and hopefully, you know, hopefully, I will not be covering COVID on a larger <laughs> level by by, by January or may lose my mind, but. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope to be only worrying about the Padres offseason in January. <laughs> and, I, and, did, and talking about who they signed at the winter meetings or not signed.
1: What do you think about their trade deadline? The Padres didn't do much. Yeah, they, they tried.
2: They tried. I mean, I think, like, realistically, as a fan, I mean, I in my sort of view, I, mean, I think it would have been great to get Scherzer, but I honestly do think that they're – they, they need the guys that they traded for this offseason to sort of, you know, perform. I mean, mm. and, and just getting Scherzer doesn't put them at the level of where some of the elite teams are. And so it would have taken a combination of some things. I think getting Scherzer and then getting Snell the pitch better, even, you know, Darvish recently hasn't been dominating. Um, you know, Musgrove has been good the last couple, but he went through a stretch where he wasn't even going like five innings. So like some of the guys that they traded for, which were good moves at the time, they just need to start sort of paying off.
1: Um, and they and they need Fernando Tatisa's shoulder to work.
2: They need Tatisa's shoulder to work. Um, you know they, you know what I've thought about them the entire year is I've loved watching them. They're they're a really fun team. They're a good team, but they're not great. They're not a great team. They haven't mm-hmm. sort of been at that level yet. Um, and I don't know that Scherzer would have made them a great team. They would have it would have made them a better team. But again, you know, like, and this is goes back to the conversation we had. I mean, it's this risk assessment, right? At this point, you're pretty much locked into a wild card game, um, at best. It's, it's, it'll, it's hard to think that they could overcome a seven game deficit with the Giants. Yeah. 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 For sure. So, I mean, do you give up a top 50 prospect in terms of all the baseball with Hassel or Abrams to get? you know, for one game essentially that you have with a Scherzer. I mean, do you feel like a Scherzer is that much better option than like a Darvish? It's, you know, it's sort of this risk assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, it's, it's a hard decision. And you know, that's why they, why AJ Pro gets paid a lot of money to make those types of decisions.
1: (laughs) Yeah. They thought they had them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a fascinating sort of like, scenario to look at even from like a journalistic standpoint like you know there's obviously the theories like you know did washington leak how much how close they thought you know that the Mm -hmm. reports had Mm -hmm. so that they could scare the dodgers you know and even like the dodgers have sort of admitted that seeing those reports made them sort of like oh wow maybe we got to get serious so let's get involved here let's get involved here so you know it's like these you know fascinating dynamics of a of a trade deadline and how you use the media and how the media plays into sort of a lot of how these situations play out. It was pretty fascinating. I mean, ultimately, you know, the Padres didn't get Scherzer, um, but I, and I think that's okay. I mean, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's, it's really hard to sort of fault a front office that has done so much in the last year mm-hmm. and a half that they didn't get this one deal done. And I think it's hard, it's hard to get angry at a front office and an ownership group that, that has just really done so much to change sort of the perception of the team and change the yeah. direction of the team.
1: For sure. Um, it's time for a moment of culture, Jorge.
2: I love culture. What do you got? What do you mean, what do I got? This is there a moment of culture, Jorge?
1: Can so you pick something?
2: Something that I've been thinking about culture-wise? Or something
1: um, you've seen the a show, like the a movie?
2: It's interesting. Um, like, you know... I'm sure as you know, obviously every person in the pandemic has been doing this, you know, watching, real, watching some series that you've watched a long time ago. Um, And right now, like me and my girlfriend are watching The Wire again. And and she, yeah, and she's, and it's funny, she's from Mexico City, grew up in Mexico City. Um, And so like, you know, watching it with her has been amazing because there's so many things that nuances that she just doesn't
1: get. Wait, is this is this not a rewatch for her?
2: No, she's never seen it. So- Okay, this
1: is this is new. First for her. time, first okay. time.
2: Yeah, I'm rewatching, but watching it with her and sort of like the nuances of like you know some things of American culture, but even like sort of like some aspects of like you know black culture, you know, in the two thousands. Yeah. Is just it's just she just gets completely lost in certainly like a lot of the slang. Um, and it's just kind of fascinating and you sort of forget how, how much sort of like these shows are about like a certain moment in time or a certain piece of sort of like pop culture that you sort of need to know to sort of fully understand everything that's going on. Um, so it's fascinating to sort of sometimes have to explain. Well, this is what was going on in the 2000s in the U.S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like <you> know, <laughs> it's just like a, a trip through memory lane of why this is happening or why they said this. So it's which sort season of a, are you on? We're on two. Um, that's
1: that's the that's the the, the union, right? Correct.
2: Okay. Right. So it's it's interesting, sort of having to sort of watch this show and watch certain, and have to sort of talk about and think about some of the things of, of the show and the era and sort of have to explain them or why I think something is funny.
0: Um,
1: yeah.
2: Why a line is funny. Or, you know, it's just funny sort of watching it through that prism.
1: I I certainly have seen The Wire all the way through and much of it's memorable to me, but I've, I've never rewatched it.
2: Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it. So it is sort of like interesting to go back and whether some stuff holds or not um and you know because like some of the things at the time were pretty groundbreaking in the way they they, you know told stories but now have become so almost cliched that it's sort of like does that affect how i appreciate it now Um, Mm -hmm. and there's certain things that are definitely like oh this doesn't seem as cool anymore (laughs) but um for the most part i mean i think you know just the and even the way that we think about Police changes the way that you look at some of the stuff that right. happens in the show. Um, I'm not going to sort of talk about plot because, like, I'm not going to ruin it for anyone who hasn't watched it. But, you know, there's it's, certain it,
1: things. Come on, man. It's it's, 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 I think there's some sort of statute of limitations. Yeah, school,
0: or, yeah. Right? I
2: mean, it's just certain, sort of like, yeah, the while they encourage certain, the police who are the heroes of the show encourage certain people to lie on the witness stand or at least don't discourage lying on the mm. witness stand to get somebody convicted um now obviously is seen through a vastly different prism <laughs> than it right. in 2002
1: it might not be as adorable
2: it might not be as sort of like funny or it might not sort of like you know seem so charming or like heroic right um in the way that sort of like you know some of the police did uh, certain things but i actually do think the show did a good job of showing the police as sort of even like anti-heroes and showing them in a not necessarily positive way, even though essentially you are rooting them for them to solve the case. You do see some of the complications of who they are as people.
1: So. Right. Um, I want to recommend a documentary that's on Hulu right now called summer of soul, which we just kind of ran into by accident and hit play. And then that it's, yeah, Next you know, it was a hundred minutes. They were like, man, that was really good. Um in 1969 there was a thing called the Harlem Cultural Festival and it went like over 6 weekends and tons of famous artists played this um almost all black uh, you know, Stevie Wonder Nina Simone like Gladys Knight and the Pips all sorts of amazing stuff and utterly forgotten to history and someone filmed the whole thing, and like it's here we are. Then this project started, like fifty years, like all this footage from this thing was unearthed. Um, from this amazing musical festival, which was far more interesting than Woodstock, which was the same year, like the you know, like drug-filled guitar noodling of Woodstock. This was far more entertaining, far more interesting. Um, the footage is absolutely amazing. And At the same time, there's also, like, it's interesting that they have the the artist now, like, 50 years later, right? Talking about this festival as they remember it and watching the footage for the first time. It's just been sitting in a basement for 50 years. And there's also this kind of running commentary of just, like, what was going on in New York City and more specifically Harlem in the 50s. And there's, you know, obviously it's a time of of tension and the great tension in the country for a variety of reasons, but there's also, like, some amazing stuff of, like, you know, one of the weekends was like, right when the moon, when American landed on the moon for the first time, right? What you think about historically as a celebration is this amazing thing. And someone asking people in the crowd about that. And they're all like, who gives a shit about the moon? We got a ton, we got a lot of problems over here, you know? And it, and it very much, it's about this incredible festival and all the entertainment that comes out of it. But it's very, it's, it, there's always this underlying tone of um, like history belongs to those who write it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I've and, heard amazing
2: things
1: about this. stuff. yeah. And, so and, I'm, I'm, I haven't yeah. watched it yet. But yeah. And th- no one, no one, I've, ne- I've, I've never heard of this thing. And, and like, most people had never heard of this thing. There's like this massive tens of thousands of people there for six weekends in Harlem. And it's just, and here it is, like, oh shit, look what happened. And this is the one that Questlove did. Yeah, that in, was yeah. interesting. And I had no idea until it was over. And it, it, it was, I was like, oh man, that was really good. And it's directed by Questlove. I'm like, oh, look at that. Um, but I can't recommend it enough. They did an incredible job like restoring the footage It's super colorful. Both the, the visuals and the sounds are, are really outstanding.
2: Yeah, I mean I've been you know, my friends have recommended it to me. A couple yeah. watched it actually in the movie theater. And they're like, You gotta watch oh, okay. it in the movie theater and I was like, Yeah, I mean I just have to get to a movie theater. I mean it's just it's just so funny how you sort of break out of habits of like a movie theater and it's just like uh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, going to a movie theater is just I haven't been to one in so long that it's like, wow, well, I guess I did used to do those things. Right, um, I was, I was already
1: breaking out of that. I think, and, and it's
2: so and it's so hard when you can just watch it on Hulu. But then, like, part of me is like, I should watch it in the movie theater. But then, I, but then I don't go, so it's like I just keep delaying watching this movie that I really want to do want to watch.
1: Yeah, um, I like I I you know it's like my midlife crisis. Pre- like I have a very nice TV and a very nice sound thing, and like so I never feel that way. I'm like ah, I, 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 there are times where yeah, we'll just we'll, we'll watch. Wait three months, we can watch it here. My couch yeah. is more comfortable. The drinks are better.
2: It's, and it's cheaper. Yeah, you know, like you don't have to pay. You know, you can like, bring drink whatever you want, eat whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, it's so comfortable. <laughs>
1: Just, do it. Just do it here, um, <laughs> so, you, so yeah, summer of soul on Hulu. Uh Jorge. I think we're done here. I have to go pack.
2: I mean, I'm I'm excited that you're getting to go and, and to have a vacation. I mean,
1: I'm excited too.
2: I mean I I would tell you tell you to enjoy yourself and and obviously you know again the risk is you know for someone who's vaccinated this is why you get vaccinated so you can go on Yeah
1: honestly I don't I don't feel I don't feel myself at any more day like I do wear masks far more often now or you know, almost any time I go inside anywhere but I don't I'm not doing it for me um yeah. I just kind of feel like it's irresponsible responsible to the rest of the world and um i don't i'm not a big fan of like oh anyone who didn't get a vaccine's an asshole or anything like that there are a lot of people who are assholes about not getting a vaccine There's also a lot of people of legitimate historic socioeconomic reasons not to trust a government health care program um that you need to understand as well and so i'm good with that i'll wear a mask for a while but i don't i don't feel any more in danger than i did six weeks ago when we booked this thing
2: yeah i mean you know it was weird for me you know i've, I've been to a couple of baseball games this summer one to petco when i was in san diego mm. i mean it was it was fun i mean it just felt so, it was so weird to just feel even normal for yeah you know, it was you know and i got you know that one of the game that i got to see a petco to hit three home runs is like amazing and it was just like you know i went with my parents and my girlfriend it was like the four of us just watching a game and it just like, like for those three hours, it just, you know, you just allowed yourself to feel like some normalcy. Um, and I think, again, this is why you get vaccinated, right? Like you just, you, you sort of, to give yourself sort of that comfort and that sort of, you know, feeling that you know, you've, you've protected yourself. And, you know, it, it's the beginning of hopefully a return to normalcy again it is slowed down a little bit, um, but we're headed in that direction, um, you know, and it's easy to get panicked and it's easy to sort of be scared. And certainly there's some areas of the country and of the world that are a little scarier than others. And I'm not saying that, that those minimize any of that, um, but it is sort of, we're, you know, we're on a path to, to normalcy and hopefully mm-hmm. it gets there sooner than, you know and, and that this is just a bump like I think it will be but hopefully it, it is that
1: for sure um I think we're done here Hori I want to thank you for joining us and thank you always for your, your 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 thoughtfulness on these subjects
2: I appreciate it Kevin it's it's always a pleasure to be sort of like your break in, <laughs> brace breaking case of emergency <laughs> <guest> <laughs> <else>. <laughs> I often play that role for many of my friends, and I'm happy always to do it
1: for you, uh, uh, no, especially. She, I bet Jorge is
0: around.
2: <laughs> He'll probably want to talk baseball because yeah. he doesn't do it anymore. So exactly. yeah, it's nice. It's nice <laughs> to talk trade deadline and not like vaccine mandates, although we did talk about vaccine mandates.
1: <laughs> exactly. I, that's a problem. I, I can't get you away from, from the real world. Um, so thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. And just like this one was a day early, next week's will be a day late. And uh, who knows? What, I have no idea what's happening then. I have I planned nothing. I, life works out okay that way. So I plan nothing. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Kendall Jorge. Thanks to Chelsea. Thanks to No Lights for the Music. And that's all, folks.